Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Barb N. was recorded on April 14th, 2022. I'm Barb. I'm an adult child, a codependent, and an abstinent compulsive overeater. And it's rare that I get choked up in a meeting anymore, um, but I've gotten choked up a couple times already, and I think it will happen again. Um, when I first came in, I cried at every meeting for like the first six months and I was the only one crying and it was awful. Um, and as the solution says, as we relief, release the burden of unexpressed grief, we slowly move out of the past. So I'm not a crier anymore. Pretty amazing. Um, so I've kind of told my story a lot and I don't usually talk too much about what it was like growing up, but because I have lots of time, I want to I want to do that. Um, so I don't identify as the child of an alcoholic, and but I'd heard of ACA for a long time, and I never heard the and dysfunctional families part, so it didn't occur to me that I would belong here. Um, but my father was a heavy drinker. I was a heavy drinker for many years too. The only reason I know I'm not an alcoholic is because I stopped. But I definitely, definitely wondered. I, you know, definitely was uh, abusive of alcohol and drugs and that sort of thing. Um, my dad was a workaholic. He was a womanizer. My mom was super codependent. We used to call her the enabler when I was a teenager. In fact, we had, we called it an opium den in our basement. We openly smoked weed um, in the basement. And when I was little, we had like the Kool-Aid house. And then when I was growing, you know, getting older, it was like the weed house. And um, we thought it was cool. You know, we were growing up and I look back now, I'm like, oh my God, also, I swear a lot. So if swearing triggers you, you should probably sign off. Um, my um, father's father was an alcoholic. His mother was a hypochondriac. I really don't know what happened in my mom's family that made her into such a codependent person. Um, my older brother is a year and a half older than me. He is a dry drunk and an untreated adult child who is um, removing himself farther and farther from society. So he got rid of his cell phone years ago. He stopped using email. And then his child, his adult child told me recently that um, in the summer, his phone got struck out somehow and he still hasn't fixed it. So he doesn't even have a phone in his house. And so he just shows up at their house with no warning or anything. And I was like, oh my God, his isolation from society is almost complete. And it's really sad. My younger brother, Pat, who died, whose birthday was would be today, he would be 51. He died in 2006 at the age of 35. He was um, severely debilitated by his bipolar disorder. He was dual diagnosis. So he had a substance abuse problem as well. He died of Legionnaire's disease. And actually the reason I picked this date for this meeting was because of Pat. And um, one time, 
I don't remember how long before he died it was, but he and I were hiking in the woods one time and he stopped just abruptly and turned around and said to me, Barb, I have this level of shame that is so deep and so profound. It cannot possibly be from this lifetime. And he spoke about wanting to get past life regression, which he never did before he got into recovery. And when I came into this program and I read the big red book and I learned that shame and guilt and abandonment are passed down through the generations, I understood that shame because it wasn't his and it wasn't from this lifetime. It was from the generations that came before us. And one of the ways that I sort of, um, I guess, managed that was I bought copies of the big red book. And I donated them to our hometown library, to my father's hometown library, to my mother's hometown library, and to the town in which my father was living at the time. He's now deceased. And I wrote in it that this is for you, Pat, and that shame that you felt wasn't yours. And I, I learned that in this, in this program, in this book, is the thing that taught me that. Um, I have been numbing as long as I can remember. So I sucked my thumb purposefully until I was eight. And I tried to stop. But until I was 10, I would wake up knowing that my thumb was in my mouth. I don't know what I did between 10 and 13. But at 13, I started smoking cigarettes. At 14, I started smoking weed, started masturbating a lot right after that, started drinking at 16. And um, I would say I wasn't born a compulsive overeater, but the switch was flipped probably in my twenties. The first time I tried to quit smoking and, um, I actually, I quit smoking entirely for six months, but then I hid and lied about smoking for 20 years, unless I was in front of, with other people that were drinking and smoking and then I would smoke in front of them. And, um, and I learned that behavior from my mother because my mother lied and she smoked in her bedroom. And when my parents were married and my father absolutely fucking hated smoking and she would lie about it. And I remember this one time my brother went in there and cause she had a bathroom off of her bedroom. And he said, it smells like smoke in here. And she said, no, it doesn't. That's the bathroom spray. I now know that's called gaslighting. I didn't know that. And for me, the worst effect of growing up in a dysfunctional family is questioning my own perception. What the fuck is real? Like, okay, my senses tell me that I smell smoke, but my mother is telling me that it's not. That's crazy making. That's what I remember. God only knows what other things I was told that I don't remember. It was a lot of the don't talk don't trust, don't feel, of course, too. But in my family, don't talk was like, don't ask questions. Like you're supposed to know stuff. I remember having a boss one time say to me, I was in my twenties, like, do you have to have an answer for everything? And I was thinking like, yes, don't you? Like what kind of a question is that? Um, you were just supposed to know stuff, you know, in my family. And um, so I, from probably 14 to 24, I was either high, trying to get high or sleeping. 
at 24, it's not like it's the parting stop. Not at all. It was hardcore. Fratello was probably about 40. I'm 59. Actually, this coming four days from today is my seven-year ACA anniversary. Um, I, at about 24 is when my like personal growth journey started. And I started, I went back, I had dropped out of college and then I went back part-time and got this like thirst for knowledge and was striving, striving, striving. Um, and, you know, just, I just thought like partying was what life was about. And I remember when I was a kid, it was this bumper sticker that said um, reality is for people who can't handle drugs. And I remember thinking that that was funny and that is so fucking sad to me right now. Um, Cause I really love reality. I really love living in reality. Um, so I probably started therapy when I was about 15 um, and I was 52 when I got into recovery and I didn't, go continuously, but damn close. So let's say 37 ish years of therapy. I read a good jillion self-help books. I did workshops, workbooks, work groups, every personality assessment you can possibly imagine, physical fitness, health, nutrition, you, you name it. I was like seeking, 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 seeking. And all that stuff was good. And I got little bits here and there. But when I got into the 12 steps of recovery, um, there's a reading and strengthening my recovery that says this, the riverbed of my life was dug up and redirected. Yes, that is precisely what happened to me. I am deeply and profoundly changed by this program of recovery, by the 12 steps of recovery um, in general. So the way I got into recovery is that um, I was volunteering at my church on a project that served homeless people. And right before it started, this homeless guy named Dan started coming to the church and we became friends. And I was like, ooh, divine intervention. Like God is bringing me a homeless person to get to know as a human so that when I'm serving homeless people, they're not like the homeless to me. They're like personified. And we became quite friendly. And one day during a snowstorm, I invited him to stay at my home. Normal people don't do that, just FYI. And he did. And then he stayed another time and then another time. And then four months later, he was practically living at my house and I felt trapped. Uh, he was a substance abuser and probably a narcissist. And he fucked with my head big time. It was so scary. And I was in therapy one time talking about him. And in mid sentence, I stopped and I went, Oh my God, do you think I need to go down? And my therapist was like, yes. So I don't know what I put into Google, but I was looking for Al-Anon and I came across the word codependent. And I was like, what, like, how is it possible? All these books I've read, all these years of therapy, all this stuff, all this introspection, I've never heard this word codependent. How is this possible? So I started going to Codependence Anonymous. And I remember, you know, saying to my, to my therapist, like, what the hell else don't I know? Like, how is it possible? This gigantic thing about me is true. And I didn't even know about it. Like what else I was, it was just so 
earth shattering to me to know that there's this giant thing. And she said, you know, Barb, I think for you, codependence is a unifying concept that pulls together a whole bunch of different things that you knew about yourself. You just didn't know that they were, it was like this constellation. And um, so initially I thought she was saying that to make me feel better. Um, but as time went on, I realized that it was really true. So I felt an initial sense of relief almost immediately in CODA. And I think it was partly because I had a label and partly because there appeared to be a solution and partly because there was other people that had this and were working on it. And I very soon remember saying to somebody who may have been Dan, I think I need to be reparented, but I thought I made that word up. I didn't know that was a thing. And six weeks into my time in CODA, I went to Cape Cod to visit my dear friends, Tim and Heidi. And Heidi had been in AA for many years and always had amazing things to say about it. So I'm telling her about CODA and she says, hey, you know, let's see if there's a CODA meeting around here. Well, I'll go with you. So she couldn't find one, but she found an ACA meeting. Her dad is an active, active alcoholic. She'd never been. And she said, I've heard great things about this meeting, let's go. And I didn't identify as a child and alcoholic, didn't hear the and dysfunctional family's part. So I was like, whatever, I'll go for you. And I walk in and they say, we reparent ourselves. And then they read the laundry list. And Heidi tells me that I sobbed the whole meeting. Don't remember that. But I do remember buying the big red book and the yellow 12-step workbook. And um, I thought that I identified with seven items on the laundry list. It turns out 13 of them because that's how thick the denial was. I came home to New Haven, Connecticut, started attending a big red book meeting. Just a handful of weeks after that, the Friday night women's meeting started, which is where I met Gretchen. And I still go to that meeting. And then a few weeks after that, I started doing the 12 steps with three other women. At that time, there were no sponsors in my area. And so we were like, fuck it, let's just start a group and start doing it. And we initially said, oh, we'll do a step a week. And then the second week, we're like, okay, maybe we'll do a step every two weeks. And two and a quarter years later, we finally finished. Um, doing the 12 steps. And in the meantime, for that first year, I continued to go to CODA, um, but I wasn't experiencing the kind and, and seeing the kind of recovery that I was seeing and, and reading about. For me, I would say the literature was my sponsor in this program because the big red book showed me these people are like me and now they're not, or they were like me and now they're not, or, and there's a solution and they explained stuff to me that I didn't even know needed to be explained. I remember reading and being like, were they like filming the inside of my head? You know, like how, what I'm, I'm like, that's what, ha I didn't know something happened, but I was like, oh, that's what happened. So I was like, man, you know, I'm in. So I continued to go to CODA and then I finally was like, you know what, this is, it's maybe like a 75% fit for me, whereas ACA 100% fit for me. So I decided to stop going to CODA and um, it, that turns out was like divine intervention. Cause one of the women that I was doing the steps with in ACA had started going to OA over anonymous. And she had a little while before that started talking about her eating behavior and her thinking around food. And I remember like jaw dropping, being aghast, 
that she was talking about it because I was like, holy shit. I didn't know other people did this kind of stuff. I didn't know people thought about this. And she 12 stepped me into OA. um, And it was while I was doing step four and I hit bottom with the sugar. So no surprise there, you know, digging through all the crap of my childhood and I hit bottom with the sugar. Um, I am now down over a hundred pounds from my top weight. uh, February 1st was four years at goal weight. And actually, so four days from now is my seven-year ACA anniversary, and six days from now is my OA abstinence anniversary, and I've been abstinent since the very beginning. So I've done the steps three times in ACA. I'm on my fourth time right now. I'm facilitating a 20-week step study that Gretchen is in. And, um, and I've done the steps twice in OA, so I've done them in OA and ACA, and for those of you who are in more than one fellowship, I'd like to share my perception of the difference, specifically step four in the different programs, especially, so OA uses um, AA literature. So I did the steps, the AA big book way, using the AA big book and the AA 12 and 12 and the OA 12 and 12. And so step four in that program was what I did. In ACA, step four is what happened to me. And I can still get at what I did by way of what happened to me, but it's completely different because in OA, you're not allowed to look at anybody else, but in ACA, we know we're a product of our environment. And so when I say what happened to me helps me know what I did, I'll give you the example of gossip in my family. So what happened to me was I grew up in a family that engaged in indirect communication. You never talked to the person you had a problem with. You talked to everybody around them. So this was a communication pattern laid down in my family before I was born. There was no hope of me growing up in that family and being able to directly communicate or even really knowing direct communication was a thing. In fact, I got offended when people directly communicated. And so, of course, I gossiped. Of course I did, right? So I feel personally quite grateful that I did the steps in ACA first before OA, because if I had found out that I was a gossip without understanding where it came from, I would have been completely riddled with guilt and shame. And I will say, I I know that ACA says you need to clean up your primary addiction first before you can do the steps here because you're not being honest. And I know that an addiction is an addiction is an addiction, but with food, you're not inebriated the way you are with drugs and alcohol. So yeah, you do addictive behaviors and you lie and you cheat and you steal and you do all that stuff, but you're at least a little bit more clear of head. You're not clear of head by any means, but I feel personally grateful that I got, you know, at least most of the way through the steps in ACA before I got to the steps in OA, because I have seen quite a number of people in OA who are also ACA that like implode when they get to step four, because they're so riddled with the guilt and the shame. And this program is so much more gentle. And, um, and if there's a real deep understanding, you know, we're a product of our environment. This is why we go through the laundry list and be like, let's see what, where did I learn that? Where did I learn that? Where did I learn that? Um, So what I really want to talk about now um, is the promises. So um, I told Gretchen that 
that I would do that. So what I did was I have a bunch of notes on the promises page and my yellow 12 step workbook, because not only uh, have I done the steps, but I also, I sponsor people. So I have one sponsee in OA who I've taken all the way through the OA 12 steps. He's in four programs. And I'm like, dude, you're an ACA. We need to get you in the ACA program. And we started by reading chapter eight in the big red book. And he ended up relapsing and deciding he needed to do some more controlled eating. He literally said that to me. And um, then he came back a few months later and said, I, so he was doing the steps in another program at the time. And he was like, I, I can't, I, it's, it's too much. So we decided that we're going to do the loving parent guidebook together. And he's only going to do the work while we're on the phone as a way to get him through it. So he's my OA sponsee, but we're doing ACA work. And then I have a sponsee that I've been working with for over four years, who is now we've done this 12 steps. We're on the laundry list. I have another one, the laundry list workbook. I have another one. We did the 12 steps. We started the laundry list workbook, got about halfway through, and he didn't really feel like it was for him. And he felt like what he really needed to do was just bury himself in meetings. So he did that and we met quarterly and we're just now picking up again. We're going to meet monthly and do the loving parent guidebook. I have another sponsee I've done the steps with. We're on the laundry list workbook. And I have another sponsee that we are on step 10 in the ACA 12 step workbook. So um, the notes that I take are insights that I get from my own work, but also from sponsoring. And I will say, that other than doing the steps, by far the thing that has strengthened my recovery the most is sponsoring. So if you are on the fence about sponsoring, I highly recommend you do it. And I think of it like this, just like doing the 12 steps, if you have a higher power and you have willingness, you can overcome anything. If you're a sponsor and you have a higher power and you have a willingness to be a sponsor, you can overcome anything. You can say, I don't know if you are presented with a situation that you don't know how to handle, but we are in dire need of sponsors in this program. One of the ways that we manage that in my um, Friday night women's meeting is we have a mentoring program. We adapted it. There's a, um, one of the intergroups in California, maybe you guys are part of it. I don't know has had a mentoring program and we just adapted their brochure. And the way it works is that people who have been in the program longer, they have to either actively be working the steps or have completed them to be a mentor, mentor newcomers for six weeks. And it does a couple of different things. One, it pulls the newcomers and gets them connected. But two, it shows people who are mentors that they actually do have something to share with other people. And sometimes those mentors do turn into sponsors. So that's my plug for sponsorship. So um, in any case, at the top of this page, I wrote... I'm not the girl in the book anymore. So that girl that I read about in the big red book when I came into this program, I'm not that girl anymore. I'm a grown up. I'm still walking around going, oh my God, I'm a grown up. I just did this solely grown up thing. And I kind of want credit sometimes. And I had actually a fellow traveler that I would occasionally, I don't know how we hit on this conversation. I said to her, sometimes I want credit for shit that like normal people do. And she was like, me too. So we were like, we text each other and be like, I just paid my bills on time. Can I get some, you know, and she like send me gold stars or whatever. Um, 
So promise number one, we will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. I would say this is the one I quote the most. This is the one that I hear people, they don't even know that what they're talking about is discovering their real identities. So this means so many things. Like I was a people pleaser, rescuer, fixer, you know, bender over backwards person, a super accommodator. So, you know, I knew there was some things that I liked, but there was a lot that was, there was a lot of barb that was open for like negotiation, you know? And so I feel like boundaries have everything to do with this. Cause when I develop boundaries, it's like, I determined the shape of barb, like my real identity. And this might sound like a mundane example, but this is, this is a really good one that probably a lot of people can identify with. And it has to do with music. So I grew up in a family where I was told rock and roll is real music. All the other music is shit. And I bought that hook, line, and sinker. Now, I'm guessing that the people that study music over the history of humans are probably not saying that Bob Seger is like the pinnacle. But I bought that. Like, rock and roll music is the real music. And one day, several years into recovery, I was driving down the road and Hotel California by the Eagles came on. Great song. Love that band. They have like a thousand hits. They play six of them on the radio, right? I was like, fuck it. I can't, I cannot hear this song one more time. And I just hit the scan button on the radio. I was like, I'm done. I like snapped. And I decided that I'm going to hit the scan button and I'm going to continue listening to a song if I like the way it sounds. I don't care what genre it is. I don't care who the artist is. I don't care what album what year it's from. I don't care. Either I like it or I don't. And that's what I did for a while. And it turns out I like dance music. I like pop music. I like indie rock music. And it feels so freeing to listen to music that feels good in my body and makes me want to bebop around. And I remember a time when I was eight years old, which would have been 1971. There were girls on the playground looking at magazines with Michael Jackson, Donny Osmond, and the Partridge family. And I looked down my nose at these girls as if I was somehow better than them because they didn't know what real music was. I was fucking eight. So my real identity is somebody who likes dance music and pop music and, and indie rock. And I don't like football, by the way. So I've been a Giants fan. I've been a Cowboys fan twice. I've been a Patriots fan. I've been a something else fan too. You know what? I actually don't like football. But depending on who I, I happen to be a heterosexual woman, so I'm attracted to men. So like every guy I've dated or damn close to every guy I've dated has liked football. So I liked whatever team they like. No, I don't. I don't like football. I don't care if you like it. That's fine. Go ahead. Um, number two, our self-esteem will increase as we give ourselves approval on a daily basis. So I don't think I've ever suffered from low self-esteem. In fact, I'm kind of on the grandiose side. Um, I'm arrogant as fuck, basically. So I have this whole, I call it this cluster of defects around arrogance. So it's like, I think I know what's best. 
I think if everybody would just listen to me, then everything would be a lot better. I think my way is the right way and all that stuff. And um, to me, that uh, too muchness is just the opposite side of the coin of not enoughness. They're both, you're not right, you know? And here's one of the things I learned in recovery. I don't have to believe my thoughts. I didn't know that. So I still have arrogant thoughts. I don't have them anywhere near as often as I used to. But now I'm like, oh, that doesn't represent the truth. It's just a thought. So when I think, you know, if everybody would just listen to me, everything would be fine. I now know that's bullshit, right? Sometimes I forget and then I'm like, oh, that's right. I don't know everything. And I'll tell you something saying, I don't know. Oh my God, that is so freeing. I love being able to say, I don't know. I just, oh, I couldn't, I just was incapable of saying that before recovery. But I do give myself approval on a daily basis. Um, For me, I didn't love myself. I think I liked myself before recovery. But when I look back at the way that I treated myself, it doesn't really seem like someone who liked themselves, but I definitely didn't love myself. And I've done, I've actually said affirmations for a long time, but they've changed in recovery. And I think, um, you know, because of that whole arrogance thing, I've realized that, that for me, it's not, a lot of times it's not even thoughts. It's that I have these feelings and then eventually the words that represent the feeling bubbles up. So the thoughts bubble up. And I finally realized one time my thought was I'm too much. So I came up with my own affirmation which is I'm just the right amount of everything. And I didn't believe it when I first said it. I mean, I think intellectually I believed it, but emotionally, no. And now I totally believe it. And for me, one of the ways that I gave myself approval was I also said, I love you, Barb, just the way you are. And one of the recommendations in the Big Red Book is to do mirror work. So I did it. And I cried. I would look in the mirror. I'd be like crying, sobbing, crying. And I'd be like, oh, love you, Barb, just the way you are. I didn't mean it. And it meant like, I love you just the way you are resisting doing mirror work. I love you looking in the mirror crying. I love you going, what the fuck are you crying for? Because that's what I was told when I was a kid. Like, do you want me to give you a reason to cry? One of the worst things you could say to a kid, in my opinion. Because I was like, wait, what? I'm crying. Wait. Yeah. Oh crazy making, like I'm crying. You're telling me I don't have a reason to cry. I feel like crying, you know? So of course I was like, you're 52 year old woman. What are you doing crying? You know? And I had felt like I had to justify my crying. And there was actually this um, Buddhist teacher. Her name is Sherry Huber. She says, um, you're responsible to your feelings, not for your feelings. And what that means to me is If you feel like crying, being responsible to your feelings is that you cry. Being responsible for your feeling is determining why am I crying? What is the source of this? Like I have to justify it. Just like if you feel like crying, just cry. And then what happens for me often is once I release, then I can kind of figure out what that was about. But sometimes I don't. And now I'm like, whatever. I felt like crying. I'm done. Um. But I've learned to give myself approval on a daily basis. And I'm at the point now where when I look in the mirror and I go, I I love you, Barb, just the way you are. I mean it. 
And so I will just like catch my eye when I walk by the mirror sometimes. And it's, it's, it's such a joy. I think, um, you know, the solution in this program is to become your own loving parent, which is another way of saying learning to love yourself. I really think that every recovery program ultimately is about learning to love yourself. That's what it's about. Um, fear of authority figures and the need to people please will leave us. So I wrote a bracket around authority figures and I wrote, God is the authority figure. So there's no more kind of negative connotations for net for authority figures. So for me, it's not so much fear of authority figures. It's, uh, I don't trust them. I don't, you know why? Cause my parents gaslit me. That's why I've been lied to my whole life. Right. So of course I don't believe authority figures. So I guess in a way I fear them because they have authority and I don't trust them. Right. But I, um, that's really changed for me. I remember, so when I started in this program, I had been working for Yale University for a very long time. I had a boss who was basically my dad, except for that she was a bl black woman who was younger than me and he was a white man that was older than me. Otherwise they were the same person. And um, I now I work for myself. So I have a variety, I have my own business and I have a variety of jobs and I work at this co-working place. And the owner, and I'm technically a contractor, and the owner one day says, hey, when you get a minute, I want to talk to you. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have any fear of going to the principal's office. I felt like I, like, I know that I'm here because I am a professional and he wants me here and he hired me for a reason because I contribute to this organization. It was this amazing realization and he literally was like, I want to run something by you. Tell me what you think about this. And it was like, holy shit, like, this is amazing. Like, I don't have this fear. I don't have this automatic assumption of like my bowels constricting and I'm getting called to the principal's office anymore. Our ability to share intimacy will grow inside us. And next to that, I wrote with sponsor, sponsees, fellow travelers, romantic partners, and others. Um, it definitely started with um, my fellow travelers. We called ourselves the stepsisters in my step group. Um, and unfortunately, two of those stepsisters are now estranged from me. Um, one of them left, I think, 12-step recovery in general. And the other one left the fellowship and actually blamed me and said that it was because she felt, felt emotionally unsafe with me. And that was quite, they, the, both of those women left my life in the same year. And that was quite the blow. And I had to do a shit ton of step work on that. And, you know, some of the people that I'm close with that sort of watched the scenario happen were like, you don't really have that kind of power bar. So just don't take credit for that, you know? So, um, but I look at it like this, you know, just like my birth family, I'm estranged you know, from my stepsisters, but i still love them dearly. They brought me through the fire, you know? Um, but in any case, um, I, I didn't know what intimacy, I mean, to me, intimacy was sex. You know, that's what I thought it was, um, before recovery. And I wasn't capable of it because I wasn't, I wouldn't allow myself to be vulnerable because I didn't feel safe because 
I only made myself vulnerable to unsafe people. And then of course they stung me. And so I didn't have a good picker of whatever kind, you know, boyfriend picker, friend picker, boss picker, neighbor picker, you know? So um, I've learned to trust people who are trustworthy and I've learned to be vulnerable with trustworthy people. And it requires vulnerability to have intimacy. Um, I used to think that my pattern with men was that I attracted emotionally unavailable people. True, but really the pattern was codependence. And then one of the things I learned in recovery, the reason that I attract emotionally unavailable people, emotionally unavailable, because of course, because emotionally unavailable people are only going to be attracted to emotionally unavailable people. 10 minutes left, Barb. Okay, thanks. So um, I'm emotionally available now. And guess what? I am in a super healthy relationship that's very intimate with a man that is in the next room. I love him dearly. We've been together for three and a half years. He's also in recovery. I had absolutely no idea this level of intimacy was possible especially now between a man and a woman. Like I remember women saying, oh, my husband's my best friend. And I was like, okay, I didn't think that they were lying, but I didn't believe them. Like what? Because I had no models for that. Like, first of all, there's the whole gender divide that you've got to cross. And then what are you talking about? And I don't walk around saying like, he's my best friend, but he is the closest person I have ever been to in my entire life. And we talk about like stuff, like, I told him the other day about this memory I had of my grandmother giving away a board game of mine that I loved to a second cousin of mine that we kept at her house for years. And I'm realizing that felt like abandonment. And, you know, I told him, like, I would never have told a previous partner that kind of stuff. So the ability of intimacy has grown inside me. We face our abandonment issues and will be attracted by strengths and become more tolerant of weaknesses. I remember when I came in, I had no idea what this meant. So the first awakening I had about that was, oh, I'll be tolerant of my own weaknesses. And now I realize it's tolerant of my own weaknesses and others because others' weaknesses, I felt the need to fix. Now I let people be. If they want my help and they ask me for it and I feel like helping and I'm available to help, okay. But I don't fix people anymore. And I'm attracted by people who are strong and stable, not by people who need me to rescue them. We will enjoy feeling stable, peaceful, and financially secure. I um, didn't know that I lived with a sense of urgency my entire life before recovery until it was gone. Um, that comes from being a reactor rather than an actor and living in fight or flight mode my entire life. And I have peace and serenity most of the time. And when I don't, I know how to get back to it because I have tools of recovery. And so I really like having a peaceful, stable life. And I do have financial security, but I, I do like, that's an area where I want to go into the fear often, regardless of the fact that I'm fine <laughs> financially. So that's an area I still have to work on. We've learned to play and have fun in our lives. This is, this is the one trait that I did. Like I actually grew up in a fun, silly family. 
So I've always played and have fun, but I feel like that has magnified, you know, I I'm, I really, really enjoy fun. I've always enjoyed fun and laughter and that sort of thing. We will choose to love people who can love and be responsible for themselves. Oh, wait, I wanted to say one of my sponsees in terms of playing have fun, he said his dad knocked the fun out of him. And he remembers the very moment when it happened. Okay, so we will choose to love people who can love and be responsible to themselves. And I underlined love and I wrote as opposed to be codependent. So instead of choosing people who need to be codependent, we choose people who can love and people who can take care of themselves so I don't have to take care of them. And that is true for me. So because I'm in recovery, I have all kinds of people in my life, especially newcomers that are needy dependent people, but I have boundaries now and I help people when I am available to help them. And I determine when that is. Um, I leave my ringer off on my phone all the time now because I, I decide when I take phone calls. Etc. Healthy boundaries will become e- will, and limits will become easier for us to set and enforce. This is absolutely enormous for me. In fact, I'm going to be doing a 90-minute boundaries for ACA workshop at the um, convention. Um, I've I've grown so far in terms of the boundaries. It's incredible. I would say boundaries are an incredible gift of recovery and an amazing tool of recovery. They enable me to do so much that I couldn't do before. And I could talk for 90 minutes about boundaries. And in fact, I'm going to, so come to that. Um, Fears of failure and success will leave us as we intuitively make healthier choices. And next to that, I wrote, we let go of the outcome. So I've learned acceptance. I've learned to live in the serenity prayer. I've learned not to be attached to outcomes. And I wrote human brain, not lizard brain, actor, not reactor. So I can make healthier choices because I'm actively choosing because I'm in my frontal lobe because I'm not in fight or flight mode because I've become an actor, not a reactor. So for me, my number one tool of recovery is pausing. It's really pause slash breathe. When I pause and I catch my breath, I pull my body. I am safe. And that takes me out of fire flight mode and enables me to use my frontal lobe so I can make healthier choices. And I've become more connected to my intuition. That's my higher power within me. With help from our ACA support group, we will slowly release our dysfunctional behaviors. I need you guys to tell me when I'm doing something fucked up. Like I had somebody say to me, I feel like you're being helpful to be manipulative. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, well, nobody asked you to do any of that. And I was like, oh my God. Because of course I was offended at first. But then when I like looked at it and I was like, oh, you know what? I was like, well, I was just trying to be hit. Oh yeah. I was just trying to be helpful. You know why? Cause I wanted you to do it my way. <laughs> Not really. Cause I wanted to be helpful. It was really because I wanted to be my way. So I need you to help me release my dysfunctional behaviors. 
gradually with our higher powers help, we will learn to expect the best and get it. I have been a lifelong optimist. That didn't matter. I had ridiculous negative self. I didn't know I was a ruminator until I got into recovery. I didn't know. I call it living into the wreckage of the future. I lived into the wreckage of the future. I used to call it catastrophizing. But when I heard we clean up the wreckage of the past, I'm like, yeah, I need to clean up the wreckage of the past, but I also need to stop living into the wreckage of the future. So um, I learned to expect the best and get it. When I start catastrophizing, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I heard somebody say recently, faith and fear are the same in that you're putting your um, belief in something that hasn't happened yet. Which one are you going to pick? I think I'm going to pick faith instead of like going down the road of the 70 million things that could go wrong. How about if I at least go to maybe three things that could go right? And speaking of higher power, I was a spiritual person before I got into recovery, but not like this. My spiritual life has just been catapulted and I make a lot of conscious contact with my higher power. In fact, um, the ability to let things go, to not be in charge, to hand stuff over, to ask my higher power for guidance I mean, there's nothing like it because I literally felt like I had to be in charge. I had to be on constantly all the time for everything. I had to have an answer for everything. Like I said before, now I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm like, all right, God, what do you want me to do? And if I don't know what to do, I do nothing because something always happens. And that gift of the higher power who I, I choose to call God. Um, but it's my own definition of what that means. Um, really has been just such a game changer for me. So um, I know that I must be very close to time. So I will stop there. And I am supremely grateful for all of you for who are giving service. And those of you who are here are giving service, even if you're just listening, because taking up a seat in a meeting is giving service because that means the meeting still goes on and will be here for other people. So if you're not ready to take a role for service, know that you're doing service just by being here. But just before you're ready to give service, that's probably a good time to start doing it. So thank you for letting me share.